Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This morning we are going to read from verse 26 through verse 31. The book of Hebrews chapter 10, commencing to read at verse 26 and reading through verse 31. Again, please give your careful attention. This is the Word of the living God. Hebrews 10 at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God abides forever. There are four major warnings in the book of Hebrews. The first in chapter 2 is a warning against drifting away by failing to hold fast to the gospel. The second we find in chapter 3, where the author exhorted his readers that they must not turn away from God with an unbelieving heart. And then thirdly, there is a similar warning in chapter 6 of the dire consequences of apostasy. And now in chapter 10, we come to a fourth similar exhortation. Now, all of these exhortations address the same concern, that professing Christians who having heard and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, might turn away into unbelief. And so we come to our passage this morning, Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31, where the author once again warns that those who, after having heard and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then turn away and deliberately reject Christ, face a fearful 
expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. As we think about this very sobering and solemn warning and exhortation, we're going to consider four things. First of all, a dreadful reality. Secondly, a trampled gospel. Thirdly, deserved punishment. And then lastly, divine judgment and love. So, first of all, a dreadful reality. Secondly, a trampled gospel. Thirdly, a deserved punishment. And then fourthly and lastly, divine judgment and love. So, first of all then, a dreadful reality. Verse 27 and verses 30 through 31. The reality and nature of hell is widely denied today, even by many who would profess and consider themselves evangelical Christians. Firstly, there are those who deny outright the idea of judgment altogether as something that is unworthy, they say, of, an un, of a loving God. If God is love, then He cannot be a God of judgment. An example of such who would say that kind of thing is a man called Clark Pinnock. He writes like this, quote, and Clark Pinnock was a professing Christian, quote, I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind an outrageous doctrine a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims who he does not even allow to die." End quote. Those words are stunning, are they not? They were written, no doubt, to have that effect. But Clark Pinnock was a professing Christian, professor of theology, no immature Christian, as it were but he considered the doctrine of hell what he calls an intolerable doctrine. Intolerable from a moral point of view, he says. It's immoral to believe in the doctrine of everlasting punishment. So, there are those like Clark Pinnock who deny it altogether. Secondly, there are those who affirm the idea of punishment but punishment means total destruction in the sense of annihilation. 
as opposed to an everlasting torment. These people are called annihilationists. They agree that God will punish the wicked, but not eternally, not with everlasting torment, but with annihilation. One of the best-known representatives of this view is John Stott. Stott writes this, quote, I find the concept of eternal conscious punishment in hell intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain, end quote. John Stott, again, was a professing evangelical Christian, minister, theologian. Now, to be fair to Stott, he did acknowledge that there was some measure of folly of simply allowing emotions to determine what we believe, our doctrine and creeds. But even as he sensed that tension, he still went on to say, quote, as a committed evangelical, my question must be, and is, not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's Word say, end quote. You see the tension in Stott's heart, for which at least we should be to some measure thankful, that he says, I find it intolerable at the level of feeling, but in the end, that's not the arbiter of truth. What do I feel about it? Is it acceptable to me or not? Ultimately, these things are determined by what does God say? So, what does the Bible say about hell? What does it say? Well, it says many things, and we don't have time this morning to be exhaustive to read every text of Holy Scripture that speaks about hell, but we will seek to be representative to show what the Bible does say about hell. First of all, in the passage before us, we have the inescapable affirmation of the judgment of God. We may not like the idea of a God who judges. You may be thinking that this morning. You may feel that this morning. I don't like a God who judges. We might prefer a God who does not judge, a God who simply loves according to our definition. But the Bible plainly declares what we find here in this passage, verse 30. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Or in verse 27 of Hebrews 10, where that text tells us that those who deliberately reject God face what? Doesn't matter. Or at best, your judgment is annihilation. That's not what it says, does it? 
There's a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, as we read Scripture with Scripture, as we always must do, we set this text in the light of what the Bible says elsewhere. Because some people will say, well, there you are, you see, in verse 27, there's going to be a consuming of the adversaries. So, does that not support the annihilationists? Well, we must set verse 27 in the context of the rest of the Scripture. And what does it say? The words of the Lord Jesus Himself, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 8. Jesus speaks of the danger of being cast into what? Eternal fire, He says. Mark chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus speaks of hell as a place where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. In the very last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, verse 9, we find that fire will come down from heaven to consume the enemies of God's people. Aha! So maybe here is text again supporting annihilation. But Revelation 20, verse 10 goes on to say, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there you are, even in the immediate context, the very next verse, the word consume cannot mean annihilation. Ah, but you may say, that only speaks of the devil and the angels. How do we know that that also applies to human beings? Well, the scene in Revelation chapter 20 does not stop with the judgment of the devil and the angels who made allegiance with him. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 bring all humanity into the picture into that same picture of divine judgment with these words. Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. From His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what is that lake of fire? That's the very same lake of burning sulfur where the devil will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the most natural and reasonable interpretation of that text 
is therefore that the punishment is like of kind. That it is not annihilation, but it is the divine judgment forever and ever. And so whether we read it from Hebrews chapter 10, whether we read it from the words of Jesus in the Gospels, whether we read it from the book of the Revelation, the Bible depicts divine judgment. The Bible depicts hell as God's divine judgment, not merely as some destruction or annihilation, but as everlasting punishment and torment for the enemies of God. And so it is against that backdrop, that dreadful reality, that we see then the urgency of the author of the Hebrews as he speaks to this professing Christian community. It's over against the reality of hell as a place of everlasting punishment and torment that he writes, it is a fearful thing, he says, verse 31, to fall into the hands of the living God. So let me ask you this morning, in all of the sobriety, in all of the awfulness of that reality, do you believe this? Or are you one like Pinnock or one like Stott or many, many others who simply say, that is not acceptable to me. That's unreasonable to me. That's a moral outrage to me, and I will not accept it. To take such a position is to set yourself against the infallible, inerrant revelation of God. God has spoken. This is true. Well, then that brings us in the second place to a trampled gospel, verse 26, a trampled gospel. Notice that this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 does not give a general statement regarding sin and its punishment, but it is rather a particular warning to those people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and then turn away. The author's particular concern here is the same as that in the previous three exhortations in the book, that these professing Christians would not turn away from God in the rejection of His Son and the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we've seen many times as we've gone through this book, there was no doubt pressure on these professing Christians to do that very thing. They were already experiencing some measure of persecution. They faced the temptation to turn back and for an easier life. Most scholars and commentators think that that's was going to increase. It wasn't at its height and zenith yet, the level of persecution, but it had probably already begun. So, the reality of this was already present for them. Perhaps we can identify that with that ourselves here this morning. 
we are tempted, are we not, as the professing people of God, at times facing the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're tempted to repudiate Christ and His gospel. Is there not an easier way? Can we retain Christ and His gospel and jettison some of these morally unacceptable doctrines of the Bible? Is how often it's put. Sure, believe in Jesus. Believe in a love of God for sinners. But you must reject a doctrine of eternal punishment for those who will not receive Christ as He's freely offered to them as the one and only Savior of sinners. The author therefore warned the Christians professing of His day as He warns us today. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, verse 26. Now, it is very important, and let me pause to say this again, it is very important to understand what the author is talking about here. What he is saying and what he is not saying. He speaks here of those who go on sinning deliberately. And so, what this verse describes is not believers who are struggling with sin. That is true of us all. It's not even describing those who may have besetting sins which plague their spiritual life and, of course, are displeasing to the Lord and often result in His fatherly discipline, as the author to the Hebrews will go on to say. He is not dealing with that either. Rather, what he refers to here is those who explicitly, deliberately, reject God's authority to tell them what they are and what they must do, and who flagrantly continue in their sin. Commentator Leon Morris puts it like this. He says, quote, It is clear that the writer has apostasy in mind here. He is referring to people who have received the knowledge of the truth. The people in question then know what God has done in Christ. Their acquaintance with Christian teaching is more than superficial. If knowing this, they revert to an attitude of rejection, of continual sin, then there remains no sacrifice for sins. Such people have rejected the sacrifice of Christ, and the preceding argument has shown that there is no other." End quote. They are trampling the gospel of Christ deliberately, flagrantly, under their feet. Well, then that brings us in the third place to deserve punishment. Deserve punishment, verses 28 and 29. 
deserve punishment. Morris says that the author is dealing with apostasy here, and he is right. Well, who and what are apostates then? They're not Christians who fall away, as some would believe this passage is speaking about, not real Christians who lose their salvation, but they are those who profess the faith, but who were never truly and really saved. And they show that by their subsequent repudiation of Christ and His gospel. That's what is in view here. In other words, there is a kind of person who intellectually, in their mind, grasps the teaching of the Scripture, and particularly the teaching of the gospel of Christ. He or she is one who knows and understands about Jesus to some extent, and yet, as the author says here in verse 29, has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace. Now, what is the fate of such a one, such an apostate? The fate of such a one is deserving of eternal punishment in hell. That's what the author speaks of here, as we saw in our first point. He is, in fact, consigned to that fate by his rejection of the only atoning sacrifice that God has provided for sin. They themselves are responsible for their destiny, for they reject the only thing that can save them. Is that you here this morning? Could it be that this awful, dreadful reality is present in our midst, that you are one in whom God's kindness and mercy has granted you to hear the gospel time after time after time, and you may with some outward compliance acknowledge God, acknowledge Jesus, know something of the truth of the gospel but in reality in your heart you trample the Son of God underfoot. What happens to such? Well, the author says the people who rejected Moses' law died without mercy. There is justice. Hebrews 10 verse 28. What then will become of those who reject the grace of God? And of course, this is one of those classic arguments from the lesser to the greater. If this happened in the lesser circumstance, then it's one of those how much more arguments. He says then, if that happened to those who rejected Moses' law, what will happen to those who reject the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved, the apostles preached? only divine judgments and everlasting punishment, a raging fire that never is quenched. 
Again, notice verse 29. The author makes clear here that he's not talking about believers and their ongoing struggle with sin. This is a statement of apostasy. We know that because the statement here in verse 29 involves the flagrant, deliberate, premeditated rejection of three specific things. First of all, the person of Christ as Son of God, one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Secondly, such an apostate rejects the saving work of Christ upon the cross. He has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And thirdly, he has rejected, trampled, profaned the Holy Spirit who has brought the gospel near. He has outraged the Spirit of grace. In Matthew 12, verse 32, we read of Jesus speaking about the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. It's a very difficult passage. But the Lord said what He said on that occasion in response to the Pharisees who accused Him that He was of the devil Himself. They said He was the devil because by the devil's power He cast out the demons. As we read of our Lord's words in Matthew 12 in the context of Hebrews 10, we see clearly here that Hebrews 10.29 makes clear that the sin involved, what is this unforgivable sin? It's the willful repudiation of the gospel and of the Christ of the gospel by those like the Pharisees who see it, claim to understand it, and yet reject it, repudiate it, trample it underfoot, attribute it even to the very devil himself. Back to Clark Pinnock for a moment, of whom we read of his words at the beginning of the sermon. Remember, he labeled any idea of eternal judgment as an outrage against morality, he said. But it's not an outrage for the holy God to judge sinners. It's what must occur in order for righteousness and justice to prevail. The outrage is not that man, having been given the gift of the coming of God's Son to be the Savior of sinners, should then despise it. That's the outrage, the moral outrage. That the gospel of Christ might be freely offered The Christ of the gospel might be freely offered to sin. The outrage is not that God judges those who repudiate that. The outrage is that a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, whether it be of the first century, whether it be of the 21st century, 
that having been freely offered eternal life in Jesus Christ, should then despise that gift, trample the one who offers it under their feet, should trample the name of the Savior offered to sinners, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, should treat as unholy His precious blood shed upon the cross, who should insult the Spirit of God, even as it is His great work to bear testimony to the work of Christ in this world. That's the real outrage. John 3 verse 18 tells us, Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Well, that brings us in the fourth and final place to divine judgment and love, verses 30 and 31. Divine judgment and love. Verses 30 and 31 emphasize the author's warning about God's judgment. If one thing proves the reality of it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, verse 31, it is the experience of Jesus Christ Himself, even as He contemplated God's judgment. Remember, on the night of His betrayal and arrest, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and it was the anticipation of the dreadful wrath of God against sin that would come upon Him as sin-bearer that weighed heavily upon Him. We read of that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22 and verses 42 through 44. Commentator James Boyce says this about that passage. He says, quote, This was not a man shrinking from mere physical death. It was the horror of the holy, eternal Son of God as He faced the experience of being made sin for us and of bearing the wrath of separation from the love of God in our place. He was delivered up so that we might be spared. He bore the wrath of God so that we might never have to bear it." End quote. This passage in Hebrews 10 tells us very clearly that God will repay sin. He will visit His vengeance on sinners. Verse 30 quotes two passages from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that establish this judgment against sin. For we know Him who said, the author to the Hebrews writes, vengeance is mine I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It was in the death 
of Jesus Christ, in the death of the Son of God, that we see demonstrated to this world the reality of God's wrath against sin, even as Jesus bore the sin of His own people upon that very cross. Jim Packer puts it this way. He says, quote, The physical pain, though great, for crucifixion remains the cruelest form of judicial execution that the world has ever known, was yet only a small part of the story. Jesus' chief sufferings were mental and spiritual. And what was packed into less than 400 minutes was an eternity of agony. Agony such that each minute was an eternity in itself. End quote. Now, of course, as often we find in the very Scripture itself, that language has to be accommodated as it is to explain the atonement in time and space such that punishment in a limited time could pay penalty for an infinite infraction against the holy God. But don't let that detract from what Packer is saying here in trying to get that straight in your mind. On the cross, God demonstrates the reality of what we see here in Hebrews 10. God will judge sin. And He did so in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for the sake of His people. Does God mean what He says? Well, you might be one of those skeptics who Peter wrote about and said, well, where is the promise of His coming and of all of this judgment to unbelievers? God has demonstrated it in the death of His Son, and if He has demonstrated the reality of it there, it will come on that last great day to those who repudiate His Christ and His gospel. Be under no illusion this morning. God means what He says about divine judgment. Well, you might say, I'm kind of like Pinnock, or even like Stott this morning. Does that not make God cruel? to punish men, women, boys, and girls like that. God Himself, in the person of His Son, stood in the place of sinners and paid penalty such that they might not have to face it. Is that a definition of cruelty? The point is not that God is morally objectionable because of His judgment against those who would repudiate and reject the greatest gift ever offered to them. That's not what is morally objectionable. What is morally objectionable is the repulsiveness of sin itself and the repulsiveness of sin that would reject the great grace of God that is offered in His Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, men, women, boys, and girls, maybe you this morning 
would still reject the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Sin is terrible. The cross of Christ declares that to you this morning, and it declares that to the whole world. What does God think about sin? Is it not really that bad? Is it something, you know, we could all just kind of get around the table and work out, and it would all be okay? It is not. The cross tells you what the holy God thinks about sin. As one commentator puts it, the cross of Christ declares it to the world even as it declares the holiness of God in letters of blood, end quote. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. He says, quote, Terribly black must that guilt be, for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must that weight of human sin be, which made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood in agony at Gethsemane and cry at Golgotha, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? End quote. And so the cross reveals the reality of sin as well as the reality of God's holy judgment upon it. But the cross reveals something else as well, equally clearly. What is that? It is also the reality of God's love for sinners and His great willingness to pay the price that they might be forgiven and restored to fellowship, reconciled at peace with Him. Well, how can that be, we might ask? How can we call the God of the cross a God of love? Many think that's just a totally inconsistent um, goal and aim. You can't have both. Well, the Bible says you can and it's because the cross reveals not only the judgment of God against sin and the reality of that, and it certainly does, but it also reveals how wide and long and high and deep is God's love. This is what it took for God to satisfy His own holy justice. This is what it took that the full payment penalty might be made. If this is what it took, then God did it. If this is what it took and meant for God to so love the world, the offering up of His one and only Son, even unto death, to offer the only one who ever measured up to God's holy law, personally, perfectly, perpetually. God was willing to do so. 
for the kinds and like of you and me. If the death of Christ was required for God to be reconciled to His sinful creatures, then in that death we see the fullness of divine love as well as divine judgment. Isn't that the greatest exposition of that perhaps most well-known text of Scripture, John 3.16? Isn't that what is meant when we read, God so loved the worlds? Here in His love, says John, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in the light of that then, as we come to a close and make one final application of our text, let us not trample Jesus Christ, God's Son, under our feet this morning by unbelief. Let us not count as unholy that blood, infinitely precious in its value, saving to the uttermost in its virtue that was shed for sinners like us. Let us not insult the Spirit of grace who bears testimony to such love of God for sinners. If we do, should any of us repudiate this gospel, then be under no illusion. God will avenge. He will repay, He says. Even the thought of falling into the holy hands of the holy God for justice ought to make us quake this morning. It's a dreadful thing for such a thing to happen. How terrible it will be for those who defy Him on that last great day to face the eternal God with no Savior, the God who will sustain your life in order to make you an example of His holy justice. There's nothing immoral in that. It is justice. It is right. But rather, before that day come and that dreadful destiny overtake you, would you not embrace Christ this morning as He's freely offered to you in His gospel? Would you not receive the greatest gift that you could receive this Christmas? whatever else you may be hoping for on Christmas morning. That will come and go. But you need this gift more than anything else in this world, however old or young you may be. Whatever your circumstances, even if your attitude is presently that of rejection, you need Jesus. Believe in the one that God has sent, the one who exhausted the wrath of God in the place of sinners, 
as Boyce said, so that those who trust in Him might not have to face that, might not have to face that, but rather be the great beneficiaries of eternal life. May God so grant it to each one of us. Amen. Let's all pray. Our Father in heaven, Your Word sobers us with its great warnings and exhortations. Lord, forbid it that there be any here this morning who would name the name of Christ merely upon their lips, merely out of some intellectual assent, but in reality are trampling under their feet the Son of God, profaning the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross, insulting the Spirit of grace. Rather, we pray, draw sinners to Yourself, young and old, Grant that each one of us might rest this day in Your Son and His final and complete work, and know therefore that there is no fear for us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Grant this to be the portion of each and every one today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.